Question 15, Part 1, of Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 15. Of the Defects of Soul Assumed by Christ, in Ten Articles. Part 1. Articles 1 through 5. We must now consider the defects pertaining to the soul, and under this head there are ten points of inquiry. First, whether there was sin in Christ, Second, whether there was the fomes of sin in him. Third, whether there was ignorance. Fourth, whether his soul was passable. Fifth, whether in him there was sensible pain. Sixth, whether there was sorrow. Seventh, whether there was fear. Eighth, whether there was wonder. Ninth, whether there was anger. Tenth, whether he was at once wayfarer and comprehensor. First article, whether there was sin in Christ. Objection one. It would seem that there was sin in Christ. For it is written in Psalm 21 verse 2, O God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my sins. Now these words are said in the person of Christ himself, as appears from his having uttered them on the cross. Therefore, it would seem that in Christ there were sins. Objection to further. The Apostle says in Romans 5.12 that in Adam all have sinned, namely because all were in Adam by origin. Now Christ also was an Adam by origin, therefore he sinned in him. Objection 3 further. The Apostle says in Hebrews 2.18 that, In that wherein he himself hath suffered and been tempted, he is able to succor them also that are tempted. Now above all do we require his help against sin. Therefore it seems that there was sin in him. Objection for, further, it is written in Second Corinthians 5.21 that him that knew no sin, that is Christ, for us God hath made sin. But that really is which has been made by God. Therefore, there was really sin in Christ. Objection 5. Further, as Augustine says in On Christian Struggle 11, in the man Christ, the Son of God gave himself to us as a pattern of living. Now man needs a pattern, not merely of right living, but also of repentance for sin. Therefore, it seems that in Christ there ought to have been sin, that he might repent of his sin, and thus afford us a pattern of repentance. On the contrary, he himself says in John 8, verse 46, 
which of you shall convince me of sin i answer that as was said above in question fourteen article one christ assumed our defects that he might satisfy for us that he might prove the truth of his human nature and that he might become an example of virtue to us now it is plain that by reason of these three things he ought not to have assumed the defect of sin first because sin nowise works our satisfaction rather it impedes the power of satisfying since as it is written in ecclesiasticus thirty four twenty three the most high approveth not the gifts of the wicked secondly the truth of his human nature is not proved by sin since sin does not belong to human nature whereof god is the cause but rather has been sown in it against its nature by the devil as damascene says in on the true faith 320 thirdly because by sinning he could afford no example of virtue since sin is opposed to virtue hence christ nowise assumed the defect of sin either original or actual according to what is written in first peter 2:22 who did no sin neither was guile found in his mouth reply to objection 1 as damascene says in on the true faith 325 things are said of christ first with reference to his natural and hypostatic property as when it is said that god became man and that he suffered for us secondly with reference to his personal and relative property when things are said of him in our person which nowise belong to him of himself hence in the seven rules of tyconius which augustine quotes in on christian teaching 331 the first regards our lord and his body since christ and his church are taken as one person and thus christ speaking in the person of his members says confer psalm 21 verse 2 the words of my sins not that there were any sins in the head reply to objection to as augustine says in on the literal meaning of genesis ten twenty christ was in adam and the other fathers not altogether as we were for we were in adam as regards both seminal virtue and bodily substance since as he goes on to say as in the seed there is a visible bulk and an invisible virtue both have come from adam now christ took the visible substance of his flesh from the virgin's flesh but the virtue of his conception did not spring from the seed of man but far otherwise from on high hence he was not in adam according to seminal virtue but only according to bodily substance and therefore christ did not receive human nature from adam actively but only materially and from the holy ghost actively even as adam received his body materially from the slime of the earth actively from god and thus christ did not sin in adam in whom he was only as regards his matter reply to objection three in his temptation and passion christ has succored us by satisfying for us now sin does not further satisfaction but hinders it as has been said hence it behooved him not to have sin but to be wholly free from sin 
otherwise the punishment he bore would have been due to him for his own sin. Reply to Objection 4. God made Christ sin, not indeed in such sort that he had sin, but that he made him a sacrifice for sin, even as it is written in Hosea 4, 8, They shall eat the sins of my people. They, that is, the priests, who by the law ate the sacrifices offered for sin. And in that way it is written, in Isaiah 53, 6, that The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is, made him to have the likeness of sinful flesh, as is written in Romans 8, 3 and on this account of the passable and mortal body he assumed. Reply to Objection 5. A penitent can give a praiseworthy example, not by having sinned, but by freely bearing the punishment of sin. And hence Christ set the example to penitence, since he willingly bore the punishment, not of his own sin, but of the sins of others. Second article. Whether there was the fomes of sin in Christ. Objection 1. It would seem that in Christ there was the fomes of sin. For the fomes of sin, and the passibility and mortality of the body springing from the same principle, to wit, from the withdrawal of original justice, whereby the inferior powers of the soul were subject to the reason and the body to the soul, now passibility and mortality of body were in Christ. Therefore, there was also the fomes of sin. Objection to further. As Damascene says in On the True Faith 319, it was by consent of the divine will that the flesh of Christ was allowed to suffer and do what belonged to it. But it is proper to the flesh to lust after its pleasures, now since the fomes of sin is nothing more than concupiscence, as a gloss says on Romans 7, 8, it seems that in Christ there was the fomes of sin. Objection 3 further. It is by reason of the fomes of sin that the flesh lusteth against the spirit, as is written in Galatians 5, 17. But the spirit is shown to be so much the stronger and worthier to be crowned according as the more completely it overcomes its enemy, to wit, the concupiscence of the flesh. According to Second Timothy 2.5, he is not crowned except he strived lawfully. Now Christ had a most valiant and conquering spirit, and one most worthy of a crown, according to Apocalypse 6.2. There was a crown given him, and he went forth conquering that he might conquer. Therefore, it would seem especially that the fomes of sin ought to have been in Christ. On the contrary, it is written in Matthew 1.20, That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Now the Holy Ghost drives out sin and the inclination to sin, which is implied in the word fomes. Therefore, in Christ there ought not to have been the fomes of sin. I answer that, as was said above in question 7, articles 2 and 9, Christ had grace and all the virtues most perfectly. Now moral virtues, which are in the irrational part of the soul, 
make it subject to reason, and so much more as the virtue is more perfect. Thus temperance controls the concupiscible appetite, fortitude and meekness the irrational appetite, as was said in the second part, pars prima secundae, question 56, article 4. But there belongs to the very nature of the fomes of sin an inclination of the sensual appetite to what is contrary to reason, and hence it is plain that the more perfect the virtues are in any man, the weaker the fomes of sin becomes in him. Hence, since in Christ the virtues were in their highest degree, the fomes of sin was nowise in him, inasmuch also as this defect cannot be ordained to satisfaction, but rather inclined to what is contrary to satisfaction. Reply to Objection 1. The inferior powers pertaining to the sensitive appetite have a natural capacity to be obedient to reason, but not the bodily powers, nor those of the bodily humors, nor those of the vegetative soul, as is made plain in Ethics one thirteen. And hence perfection of virtue, which is in accordance with right reason, does not exclude passibility of body, yet it excludes the fomes of sin, the nature of which consists in the resistance of the sensitive appetite to reason. Reply to Objection 2. The flesh naturally seeks what is pleasing to it by the concupiscence of the sensitive appetite, but the flesh of man, who is a rational animal, seeks this after the manner and order of reason. And thus with the concupiscence of the sensitive appetite, Christ's flesh naturally sought food, drink, and sleep, and all else that is sought in right reason, as is plain from Damascene, in On the True Faith 3.14. Yet it does not follow, therefore, that in Christ there was the fomes of sin, for this implies the lust after pleasurable things against the order of reason. Reply to Objection 3. The Spirit gives evidence of fortitude to some extent by resisting that concupiscence of the flesh which is opposed to it. Yet a greater fortitude of spirit is shown if by its strength the flesh is thoroughly overcome, so as to be incapable of lusting against the spirit. And hence this belonged to Christ, whose spirit reached the highest degree of fortitude. And although he suffered no internal assault on the part of the fomes of sin, he sustained an external assault on the part of the world and the devil, and won the crown of victory by overcoming them. Third Article Whether in Christ there was ignorance? Objection 1. It would seem that there was ignorance in Christ. For that is truly in Christ which belongs to him in his human nature, although it does not belong to him to his divine nature as suffering and death. But ignorance belongs to Christ in his human nature. For Damascene says in On the True Faith 3.21 that he assumed an ignorant and enslaved nature. Therefore, ignorance was truly in Christ. Objection to further. One is said to be ignorant through defect of knowledge. Now some kind of knowledge was wanting to Christ, for the Apostle says in Second Corinthians 5.21, He that knew no sin, for us he hath made sin. Therefore there was ignorance in Christ. 
Objection 3 further, it is written in Isaiah 8, 4, For before the child know to call his father and his mother, the strength of Damascus shall be taken away. Therefore, in Christ there was ignorance of certain things. On the contrary, ignorance is not taken away by ignorance, but Christ came to take away our ignorance, for he came to enlighten them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Luke one seventy nine. Therefore, there was no ignorance in Christ. I answer that, as there was the fullness of grace and virtue in Christ, so too there was the fullness of all knowledge, as is plain from what has been said above in question 7, article 9, as well as in question 9. Now, as the fullness of grace and virtue in Christ excluded the fullness of sin, so the fullness of knowledge excluded ignorance, which is opposed to knowledge. Hence, even as the fullness of sin was not in Christ, neither was there ignorance in him. Reply to Objection 1. The nature assumed by Christ may be viewed in two ways. First, in its specific nature, and thus Damascene calls it ignorant and enslaved. Hence he adds, For man's nature is a slave of him, that is God, who made it, and it has no knowledge of future things. Secondly, it may be considered with regard to what it has from its union with the divine hypostases, from which it has the fullness of knowledge and grace, according to John 1.14. We saw him, as it were the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in this way, the human nature in Christ was not affected with ignorance. Reply to Objection 2. Christ is said not to have known sin, because he did not know it by experience, but he knew it by simple cognition. Reply to Objection 3. The prophet is speaking in this passage of the human knowledge of Christ. Thus he says, Before the child, that is, his human nature, know to call his father, that is, Joseph, who was his reputed father, and his mother, that is, Mary, the strength of Damascus shall be taken away. Nor are we to understand this as if he had been sometime a man without knowing it, but before he know, that is, before he is a man having human knowledge, literally, the strength of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria shall be taken away by the king of the Assyrians. Or spiritually, before his birth he will save his people solely by invocation, as a gloss expounds it. Augustine, however, in one of his homilies, says that this was fulfilled in the adoration of the Magi. For he says, Before he uttered human words in human flesh, he received the strength of Damascus, that is, the riches which Damascus vaunted. For in riches the first place is given to gold. They themselves were the spoils of Samaria, because Samaria is taken to signify idolatry. Since this people, having turned away from the Lord, turned to the worship of idols. Hence these were the first spoils which the child took from the domination of idolatry. And in this way, before the child know may be taken to mean before he show himself to know. Fourth article. 
whether Christ's soul was passable. Objection 1. It would seem that the soul of Christ was not passable. For nothing suffers except by reason of something stronger, since the agent is greater than the patient, as is clear from Augustine in On the Literal Meaning of Genesis 12.16 and from the Philosopher in On the Soul 3.5. Now no creature was stronger than Christ's soul. Therefore, Christ's soul could not suffer at the hands of any creature, and hence it was not passable, for its capability of suffering would have been to no purpose if it could not have suffered at the hands of anything. Objection to further. Tully, in his questions, says that the soul's passions are ailments. But Christ's soul had no ailment, for the soul's ailment results from sin, as is plain from Psalm 40, verse 5. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. Therefore, in Christ's soul there were no passions. Objection 3. Further, the soul's passions would seem to be the same as the fomes of sin. Hence the Apostle in Romans 7, 5 calls them the passions of sins. Now the fomes of sin was not in Christ, as was said above in Article 2. Therefore, it seems that there were no passions in his soul, and hence his soul was not passable. On the contrary, it is written in Psalm 87, verse 4, in the person of Christ, My soul is filled with evils. Not sins, indeed, but human evils, that is, pains, as a gloss expounds it. Hence the soul of Christ was passable. I answer that a soul placed in a body may suffer in two ways. First, with a bodily passion. Secondly, with an animal passion. It suffers with a bodily passion through bodily hurt. For since the soul is the form of the body, soul and body have but one being. And hence, when the body is disturbed by any bodily passion, the soul too must be disturbed, that is, in the being which it has in the body. Therefore, since Christ's body was passable and mortal, as was said above in question 14, article 2, his soul also was of necessity passable in like manner. But the soul suffers with an animal passion in its operations, either in such as are proper to the soul, or in such as are of the soul more than of the body. And although the soul is said to suffer in this way through sensation and intelligence, as was said in the second part, Pars Prima Secundae, question 22, article 3, as well as in question 41, article 1, Nevertheless, the affections of the sensitive appetite are most properly called passions of the soul. Now these were in Christ, even as all else pertaining to man's nature. Hence Augustine says in On the City of God 14.9, Our Lord, having deigned to live in the form of a servant, took these upon himself whenever he judged they ought to be assumed, for there was no false human affection in him who had a true body, and a true human soul. Nevertheless, we must know that the passions were in Christ otherwise than in us, in three ways. First, as regards the object, since in us these passions very often tend towards what is unlawful, but not so in Christ. Secondly, as regards the principle, since these passions in us 
frequently forestall the judgment of reason. But in Christ all movements of the sensitive appetite sprang from the disposition of the reason. Hence Augustine says, in On the City of God 14.9, that Christ assumed these movements in his human soul by an unfailing dispensation, when he willed, even as he became man when he willed. Thirdly, as regards the effect, because in us these movements at times do not remain in the sensitive appetite, but deflect the reason, but not so in Christ, since by his disposition the movements that are naturally becoming to human flesh so remained in the sensitive appetite that the reason was nowise hindered in doing what was right. Hence Jerome says, commenting on Matthew 26.37, that our Lord, in order to prove the reality of the assumed manhood, was sorrowful in very deed. Yet lest a passion should hold sway over his soul, it is by a propassion that he is said to have begun to grow sorrowful and to be sad. So that it is a perfect passion when it dominates the soul that is the reason, and a propassion when it has its beginning in the sensitive appetite but goes no further. Reply to Objection 1. The soul of Christ could have prevented these passions from coming upon it, and especially by the divine power. Yet of his own will he subjected himself to these corporeal and animal passions. Reply to Objection 2. Tully is speaking there according to the opinions of the Stoics, who did not give the name of passions to all, but only to the disorderly movements of the sensitive appetite. Now it is manifest that passions like these were not in Christ. Reply to Objection 3. The passions of sins are movements of the sensitive appetite that tend to unlawful things, and these were not in Christ, as neither was their fomes of sin. Fifth Article. Whether there was sensible pain in Christ. Objection 1. It would seem that there was no true sensible pain in Christ. For Hilary says in On the Trinity 10, Since with Christ to die was life, what pain may he be supposed to have suffered in the mystery of his death, who bestows life on such as die for him? And further on he says, The only begotten assumed human nature, not ceasing to be God, and although blows struck him and wounds were inflicted on him and scourges fell upon him and the cross lifted him up, yet these wrought indeed the vehemence of the passion, but brought no pain as a dart piercing the water. Hence there was no true pain in Christ. Objection to further. It would seem to be proper to flesh conceived in original sin to be subject to the necessity of pain. But the flesh of Christ was not conceived in sin, but of the Holy Ghost in the virgin's womb. Therefore it lay under no necessity of suffering pain. Objection 3. Further, the delight of the contemplation of divine things dulls the sense of pain. Hence the martyrs in their passions bore up more bravely by thinking of the divine love. But Christ's soul was in the perfect enjoyment of contemplating God, whom he saw in his essence, as was said above in Question 9, Article 2. Therefore, 
he could feel no pain. On the contrary, it is written in Isaiah 53 verse 4, Surely he hath borne our infirmities and carried our sorrows. I answer that, as is plain from what has been said in the second part, the Pars Prima Secundae, question 35, article 7, for true bodily pain are required bodily hurt and the sense of hurt. Now Christ's body was able to be hurt, since it was passable and mortal, as stated above, in question 14, articles 1 and 2. Neither was the sense of hurt wanting to it, since Christ's soul possessed perfectly all natural powers. Therefore, no one should doubt but that in Christ there was true pain. Reply to Objection 1. In all these and similar words, Hilary does not intend to exclude the reality of pain, but the necessity of it. Hence, after the foregoing, he adds, nor when he thirsted, or hungered, or wept, was the Lord seen to drink, or eat, or grieve. But in order to prove the reality of the body, the body's customs were assumed, so that the custom of our body was atoned for by the custom of our nature. Or when he took drink or food, he acceded not to the body's necessity, but to its custom. And he uses the word necessity, in reference to the first cause of these defects, which is sin, as above stated in question 14, articles 1 and 3, so that Christ's flesh is said not to have lain under the necessity of these defects, in the sense that there was no sin in it. Hence he adds, For he, that is Christ, had a body, one proper to his origin, which did not exist through the unholiness of our conception, but subsisted in the form of our body by the strength of his power. But as regards the proximate cause of these defects, which is composition of contraries, the flesh of Christ lay under the necessity of these defects, as was said above in question 14, article 2. Reply to objection 2. Flesh conceived in sin is subject to pain, not merely on account of the necessity of its natural principles, but from the necessity of the guilt of sin. Now this necessity was not in Christ, but only the necessity of natural principles. Reply to Objection 3. As was said above in Question 14, Article 1, Second Reply, by the power of the Godhead of Christ, the beatitude was economically kept in the soul so as not to overflow into the body, lest his passibility and mortality should be taken away. And for the same reason, the delight of contemplation was so kept in the mind as not to overflow into the sensitive powers, lest sensible pain should thereby be prevented. End of question 15. Part 1. Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.